Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. If you'll turn, please, to John chapter 3. And while you're turning to John, I'd like to thank Jeff for graciously offering to move the microphone over to me so I wouldn't have to get up. I am 70 years old, but I've got days left in me. (laughs) Reading in John chapter 3 from the start. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit.
Anyone who has known me for any length of time knows that I am not a great fan of the holidays, a word that was handed down to us from holy days. Most of our modern holidays don't seem very holy anymore. But I do have to admit that I like Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a uniquely American and very Christian holiday. It is set aside, and there are decrees that go all the way back to George Washington, decreeing that the whole nation ought to set aside a day to give thanks to the creator and sustainer of all life. Well, how do you not like that? Now, granted, these days, Thanksgiving has become about food, lots of food, and then more food, and getting together with family and friends. But remember this Thursday that you're supposed to be giving thanks to our Father, to the maker of heaven and earth, to the creator of all things who has been very, very kind to you, very, very good to you. And if you can remember that, then it'll be another good Thanksgiving. We are in Revelation chapter 18. God willing, we're going to make it all the way to chapter 19 this morning. But we're going to start in Romans 8. If you know the book of Romans at all, you know that Romans 8 is a very, very familiar passage to those of us who are reformed in our thinking. It is the chapter that begins, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. That's a very happy declaration to begin with. It ends with, in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present or things to come or powers nor height nor depth nor other created things shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. In between those declarations, we find some of the most sovereign most Calvinistic, most predestinarian words that Paul ever wrote, Romans 8, 28, and 29, and 30. I mean, that's the stuff that we all kind of go to when we want to demonstrate that our theology is actually drawn right from the Bible. It's the language of whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined he also called, and whom he called he also justified, and whom he justified he also glorified. What are we going to say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? These are the passages that we're familiar with, and yet tucked away in this chapter, Paul also says that the whole of the creation is groaning toward its ultimate redemption. I'm going to start reading at Romans 8, 18, because I believe this is very much what we're reading about right now in the book of Revelation and the destruction of Babylon and the destruction of the world's political and economic and even spiritual and religious systems and the ultimate redemption and restoration of this planet. Paul says that the planet itself is looking forward to that event. Romans 8, starting at verse 18, it says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For... The eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul looks back at the entirety of human history here on planet Earth, and he concludes that the fall was more than just mankind falling into sin. But you might recall that Genesis tells us that then weeds grew up out of the ground. Then all of agriculture changed. We've even seen our atmosphere change over the time that human beings have been here on the planet. The world itself, the creation itself, the planet itself groans for the ultimate glorification that God has promised it. With that introduction, we can go to Revelation 18 and begin to understand yet again why it is that the entire world system has to be demolished. The entire world system is going to be destroyed. Now, starting from verse 9, it's not very complicated language. We read it all out two weeks ago. We're going to read it again today. But it's not difficult. It doesn't take a whole lot of explanation. But it is a study in contrast. Because as the world system is falling apart, as the political systems of this world, as the economic systems of this world, as the religious and spiritual systems of this world are falling apart, you're going to see human beings on planet Earth described as weeping and moaning and crying, heaping dust on their heads. They're mourning over the fact that the world that has made them so rich, the world on which they counted their whole lives, is falling apart from under them. And if that's all you've got is the world system, if that's where your confidence is, if that's where your hope is, well, Peter tells us this world and everything that's in it is going to burn. So there is no lasting value to this world. It is all going to fall under God's judgment. It is all going to be consumed in the conflagration. And then new heavens and new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. If you're on the side of righteousness, if you're on the side of God, then you're going to celebrate as the systems of this world finally collapse. Because they have to. If human beings have proven anything in history, they have proven that they're no good at self-governance. I mean, originally, God intended Israel to be a theocracy. And he said, here are my rules. Here's my law. Be obedient. I'm your king. And they, like all human beings, end up coming to Moses and saying, actually, they don't come to Moses come to Samuel and say, we need a king. We want to be like the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. And God says, okay, I'll give you a king, but I'm warning you, it's going to ruin you. And they say, okay, give us a king anyway. And they end up with Saul, who is a ruinous king. God ends up taking his spirit from him. And then God gives them a king after his own heart, David, gives him the Davidic covenant and the promise that ultimately his progeny, his son, his offspring is going to rule not only over the 12 tribes of Israel, but over all the nations of the earth from Jerusalem. That promise is from God as contrasted to human desire for human self-governance, for human kingship, for human wealth, for human riches, for human consumption, for human heaping on themselves absolutely everything you can heap on yourself. That's what people want. Just give me more power. Give me more fame. Give me more money. Give me more me. Give me more stuff. And as I said, that's all going to burn. So if you don't have God, if you don't have Christ, then ultimately you inherit nothing but the judgment of God and the failure of this world. So let's read it. 
I'm in Revelation 18. I'm starting at verse 9. I'm going to be pointing out, and please recognize, how the people of earth react to the fall of the world's systems. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and live sensuously with her, with Babylon, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, they are saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment is come. That means very quickly, very definitively, God is going to destroy the systems that he is referring to as Babylon. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. So why are they weeping? They're seeing judgment happening on the planet. Why are they weeping and mourning? It's not because they see God judging. It's not because they're even in fear of God. They're weeping and mourning because nobody's going to buy their stuff anymore. They're not going to be rich anymore. No one's going to buy their cargoes, which means, according to verse 12, they're going to end up with cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. These are all the things that human beings have considered precious and valuable through the course of human history. Everything from gold down to slaves, the ownership of everything that the planet can produce is what we consider valuable. We consider that wealth. We think that's how you become rich. You store up all the gold and the silver and the precious stones and the pearls and the fine linen, and then you're actually well-to-do. But notice when God arranges it in such a way that they can no longer sell their wares when there are no more cargoes to ship, they weep over the fact that they're not going to be wealthy anymore because this world finds its self-value. This world finds its own self-assessment in its own wealth, in what it produces. There is a phrase in American history that you've probably all heard, the phrase is self-made man. When we look at the, uh, the great industrialists of American history, the ones who started companies and then raised those companies up and then became fabulously rich, those are people who say, I did this by my own bootstraps. I lifted myself. I'm a self-made man. I did all this. Okay, so if their self-value is determined by what they've accumulated in this life, then what value do they have when you take away all the stuff? None. They have no value. And yet we're told repeatedly in the Bible that if you accumulate nothing in this life, if you are among the most impoverished people in this life, and yet you have Christ, that you are eternally rich. You are eternally secure in the finished work of Christ and that is the greatest value you can accumulate in this lifetime. So again, what's the contrast? What are you going to consider valuable? What are the things of this life that you're actually going to think are precious? Is it going to be the stuff of this life? Or is it going to be Christ in your life? Keep reading. Verse 14, and the fruit you long for is gone from you, and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of all these things who became rich because of trading with Babylon, with this world system, they will all stand at a distance 
because of the fear of her torment. And they will be weeping and mourning and saying, Woe, woe, the great city. She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, very quickly, such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and every sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads. And they were crying out, weeping and mourning and saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. So again, repeatedly over and over, what are we seeing? The weeping, the mourning is over the fact that we're not rich anymore. We liked being rich. We liked being powerful. We liked having control over other people. And that's all been stripped away from us as the economy of the world completely collapses. And that's what they weep over. That's what they mourn over. They're not weeping or mourning over the fact that they took advantage of other people. They're not weeping or mourning over the fact that they held people in bondage by their great wealth. They're not weeping or mourning over the fact that they're finally being revealed in the eyes of an ever-living, ever-powerful God. No, they're weeping and mourning over one thing and one thing only. I want my money, and my money is gone. And my ability to make money is gone. So they are weeping and they are mourning. Okay, that's one half of the contrast. Starting at verse 20, you're going to see the other half of the contrast. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Completely different group. You've got all the wealthy of the earth weeping and mourning over the fact that the systems that gave them wealth have all collapsed on them. But in heaven, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints. That would be the collection of God's holy ones, all the ones that God has separated to himself. All of you are expected to rejoice. And apostles and prophets, very particular language. Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. These are the prophets, by the way, who, as we saw for the last two weeks, predicted the fall of Babylon. And so they're rejoicing because God who has given them this word, this prophetic word, that Babylon was going to fall. God is finally keeping his word, finally doing what he said he was going to do, and the people of God rejoice over the fact that God is doing what he's doing. Get this right. The people of God always rejoice over God doing what God says he's going to do. We are not in opposition to God. We don't stand against God's word. In fact, it's a great reassurance to our faith when we see God acting in time and history and actually accomplishing the very things that he said he was going to do. So rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and you apostles and prophets. Why? Because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Why? Because the Babylonian system, the world system, the politics of this world, the economy of this world are not in favor of the things of God and they continually work in opposition to Christianity and the things of God. Would you like a few examples? I'm sure you could think of a few examples. Is abortion legal in America? Technically, it is, right? Yeah. Is abortion biblical? No. no. Is abortion Christian? No. And if you stand in opposition to abortion, will the world love you for that? Yes. 
No, the world will hate you for that. That's that whole Babylon system thing. Has the definition of marriage changed in the world in the last 30, 40 years? Radically. Radically. The biblical definition of marriage is one man, one woman for life. There it is. That's biblical marriage. There you go. So if you stand up and say that out loud in the society at large, are you going to be opposed by the society at large? Yeah, of course. Because the Babylon system has always been in opposition to the biblical standards, the biblical morals, the biblical worldview. The world, the society has always been in opposition to all things Christian. And yet here, God says that he is going to judge for us on our behalf against her. See, there's, there's nothing that we can do about some of this stuff. It's very frustrating. If you are political at all, which I am not, but I certainly watch. If you're political at all and you see what's going on in the world right now, can you think of anything you're kind of opposed to that's been going on lately? <laughs> Even some of the economics or some of the wars or some of the laws that get passed where you just think, well, now the lunatics are running the asylum. <laughs> and yet, despite the fact that we hate to see what's going on, can you really do anything about it? I mean, once every couple of years they tell you to go vote, you do that, and the vote still doesn't go your way. And so can you really fix the problems of this world? No, you can't even fix you. So you're not going to be the solution. The solution is God, who is going to judge her on behalf of you, because you're on God's side, and because you took the slings and arrows here on this planet in this lifetime, in this world. And therefore, God is going to defend you. God is going to stand for you. God is going to judge her for you. And you are going to celebrate. That is your whole job. Your whole position as God is doing all of this for you is to celebrate God in the doing of it. You are going to rejoice over the fall of Babylon, all of heaven, and the saints and the apostles and the prophets are all going to rejoice because God has pronounced judgment on our behalf against her. It's just good to know that there is ultimately judgment coming and that God is going to do what is right. And so, verse 21, a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it down into the sea, saying, Thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer, and no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. Because all the nations were deceived by the sorcery of Babylon. By the way, pay attention to that. All the nations of the earth were deceived. Because when we get to chapter 20, we're going to read about the binding of Satan, which occurs for one particular reason, so that he can deceive the nations no longer. Pretty much anywhere you look in the Bible, you're going to find that concept. We just call it total depravity. The fallenness of human beings ever since Adam and Eve. The sinfulness, the depravity of human beings. So naturally, when we set up our systems, when we set up our governments, 
when we set up our financial institutions. Of course, they're going to be corrupt. They're created by corrupt people in the first place. So it's no surprise that they become corrupt. The end of them is when God ends them, and it is a total end. It is a complete end. No more joy, no more merriment, no more light, no more brides and bridegrooms, no more merchants. And the declaration is that the great men of the earth, the powerful, the wealthy, the influential men, those are the men that belong to Babylon. And they are part of the deception that the whole world has fallen into. Have you ever found yourself looking at some story on the internet and thinking to yourself, that's crazy. How can that be what's going on? How how did you all collectively decide to do this? Well, they're deceived. That's why. The Bible has answers to the reason that the world is the way it is. It's because it's demonic. It's because the great men of the earth are deceived. And in her, says verse 24, in Babylon was found the blood of prophets and the blood of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Ever since Cain slew Abel, The blood of the slain has been crying out to God. It is part of the corruption of this planet that is groaning for its ultimate redemption, its remaking. Now, some folks say, when interpreting Revelation 18, some folks say that the great city that's being referred to over and over here is Jerusalem. Because of Jesus saying, like in Matthew 24, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets. And so based on that, and the fact that Jesus said that all the prophets were slain at Jerusalem and the blood of all those slain was going to be on Jerusalem, people conclude that this whole chapter might be talking about Jerusalem. But you will notice that John writes something greater than what Jesus said. It's not just the blood of the prophets. But it's the blood of all the saints all over the world and all who have ever been slain on the whole earth. That means God, by the way, is aware of every single person, every single life, every single death. And he's keeping a running tally. And he is ultimately going to avenge all his that were ever slain here on planet earth. In her was found the blood of the prophets and the blood of the saints and of all who have ever been slain here on the earth. Okay, now, for the last couple of weeks, I have been stressing, as we have looked back at the Old Testament prophecies concerning Babylon, I've been stressing that the reason God had prophets predict the fall of physical Babylon which then actually happened in time and history. He even predicted the people that were going to do it. It was going to be the Medes. It was going to be the Persians that were going to conquer seemingly inconquerable Babylon and predicted it hundreds of years in advance, even naming Cyrus by name. And then that all actually happened in time and history. I know a few of us, have seen the video that Micah sent out after last week's sermon. If you haven't seen it, uh, let me know. We'll forward it to you. And for the folks on the internet, well, at least for the folks on Facebook, I'll link to the video because there's a guy who actually went to Iraq with a film crew and filmed the area of Iraq that used to be Babylon. And he added graphics to show you where the city walls used to be and the tremendous size of what Babylon used to be. And within those city walls, there's a grand total of nobody. But what he found was jackals and wolves and hyenas and owls. And he found all the loathsome creatures that all the prophets said were going to occupy Babylon continually. 
And despite the last couple thousand years of people trying to rebuild Babylon to this very day, it doesn't exist. It's pretty amazing. That's one of those examples that I like to point to and say, see, there again, the Bible's true. You don't even have to take it on faith. All you have to do is read what the prophets have said about the fall of physical Babylon and then go there and look. If you went to Iraq and Babylon actually existed, if there were hanging gardens again, then you could conclude that the Bible's not true. And yet the Bible, unique among all religious literature in the whole history of planet Earth, the Bible predicts things that you can actually check, and so far, it's got a perfect average going. So far, everything the Bible predicted has actually occurred, which is why I have so much confidence that the rest of what God has said is coming is actually going to come. So my point is, the fall of physical Babylon The complete destruction, the wiping out of physical Babylon is the foundation and basis on which we know, on which we can say confidently that spiritual Babylon, political Babylon, economic Babylon is also going to fall because the same word of God says it. So where are you going to put your loyalties? Where are you going to place your value? What's important in your life? If it's the stuff of this world, then your priorities are wrong. Because some of us, and here when I say some of us, I'm talking particularly about me and Tom. Some of us aren't going to be here much longer. You know, Tom said he's still got a few days left in him. (laughs) I told somebody the other day, I've got enough money to last me the rest of my life, provided I die Thursday. So we're not going to be around here on the planet that much longer. And then we have to face eternity. So what's valuable? What did we spend our lives pursuing? The stuff of Babylon is surely, certainly going to be destroyed. This world system has got to fall. Because God ultimately has to be all and in all. The Son of God is going to rule from Jerusalem with his rod of iron. The world, once again, is going to bow the knee. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord over all to the glory of God the Father. That has to happen. It's already stated. It's already declared. That's got to take place. And that can't take place as long as the human beings of this world are so engaged in their own self-value, self-worth, self-wealth, self-governance, self-pride, self-ego, and self-sufficiency. God has to destroy that. In John 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus spoke about how the world hated him. It says, if the world hates you, by the way, anybody ever get the feeling here that the world kind of hates you? Oh, yeah. Well, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, this world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now, the reason I read that is because I am convinced that Babylon, the Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18, in all its parts and pieces, constitutes or represents what Christ is referring to here as the world. Of course, the world hates you. Of course, Babylon hates you because you stand for God who is ultimately going to judge Babylon. And Babylon doesn't want to know about the judgment of God, so you are like a big, red, neon, blinking sign that reminds the world that God is a judge and that he is ultimately going to establish this world in righteousness. When Jesus gave his apostles the model prayer, 
We know it as the Lord's Prayer. I call it the Apostles' Prayer. When he gave them that model prayer, after saying, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed is your name, separate, higher than us. Your kingdom come. What's the next line? And your will be done. Your will be done. Where? On earth. On earth as it is in heaven. Even Jesus told his followers, start your prayer by saying to God, I want this planet to be yours. This whole world needs to be conformed, needs to be converted, needs to be judged, needs to be established in righteousness. And Jesus prioritized that in the prayer that he gave us. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. So what I hope you saw from the end of chapter 18 there was the contrast between the weeping world, if you don't mind the alliteration, the weeping world versus the celebrating saints. The saints in heaven, the apostles and the prophets are all celebrating God and praising God and lifting up the name of God as God is pouring out the judgment that he always said he was going to bring about. And the people of God celebrate as he does that. Now you know, don't you, that John was not writing chapter and verse. John was writing a letter. And so the 19 that you see right there is not suddenly a brand new thought. It is a continuation of what John is seeing going on in heaven. And he uses the phrase that I've been emphasizing for weeks now. He uses the phrase, after these things, because he's setting up a sequence. The things that he is seeing, the things that he is encountering are happening sequentially. After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Okay, so back in verse 20, we read, rejoice over her, O heaven. That rejoicing is actually taking place here. And John is beginning to describe it. After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And they were saying, hallelujah. You ever heard the word hallelujah? We hear it a lot in our culture, whether it's a Leonard Cohen song or whether it's part of Handel's Messiah. We're all familiar with hallelujah. Do you know how frequently hallelujah actually appears in the Bible? People are kind of surprised to find this out. It really only occurs a couple of times and only in the Psalms and then in some of what are known as the intertestamental books. And then here in Revelation. In fact, it occurs in what are known as the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms were particularly Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And those Psalms were recited by the Jews during their Jewish holy days, actual holy days. As they were going up to Jerusalem, they would recite those Psalms verbatim. And it is in those psalms that you see hallelujah show up. Our word hallelujah, our English word hallelujah, is actually a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means praise ye Yah. You know that God's name is Yahweh. The shortened version of that is Yah. So praise ye Yah. In other words, it is a directive. It is actually a command that those who belong to God are told by God and by the angels of God that it is our job to praise God. And praising God means a whole lot more than just saying, praise you. I praise you. Jeff, I praise you. Does that really mean anything to Jeff? means nothing. However, if I say to Jeff, you played guitar really well this morning, what am I doing? Praising 
I'm praising him. So the directive, the verb, is to praise God. But then you praise God in the way you live, in the way you talk, in the way you think, in the way you conduct yourself, and in the things that you say to God. When you say thank you to God for his provision to you, you are praising God. When you say good things about God, this is why David would call it blessing God. He would say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, what does that mean? How do you bless God? It means to speak well of him, to say good things about him. That is how you praise somebody. You actively talk about his qualities. You actively talk about his characteristics. You talk about his attributes. You talk about his value. You talk about everything he has done for you. You talk about him in a positive way as you tell other people about him. Even as you are proclaiming the gospel, you are praising God because you're talking about the work of God and the accomplishment of God. And you are directed by the word hallelujah to do that. So it's a whole lot more than just because we're so familiar with it. We say hallelujah and we think we've accomplished praising God by saying that word. But it actually means praise Yah. It's an expression of gratitude. It's an expression of adoration. That term is actually found 24 times in the book of Psalms. Twice, as I mentioned, in the Deuterocanonical books, and then four times here in the book of Revelation. And that's it for the whole Bible, despite how familiar we are with that word. Then, every once in a while, you'll hear people <laughs> say, Alleluia, instead of Hallelujah. I hope you can hear the difference in the inflection, using the H or not using the H. And Alleluia is really just based on an alternative Greek translation of the original Hebrew word, Hallelujah. They mean the exact same thing. They mean worship Yah, praise Yah, say good things about Yah. And so what's going on in heaven, according to chapter 19, verse 1, after the fall of Babylon, after the judgment and destruction of Babylon, after these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah. And then they actually do it. Not only do they say, praise God, but then they do praise him because salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Salvation belongs to our God. Whether we're talking about physical salvation, him getting us through this life, the way that David uses the word in the Psalms, he uses it as sustenance, as God taking care, as God feeding you, as God protecting you from death. That is all part of God's physical salvation, and then also actual, eternal, heavenly salvation belongs to God. I have to emphasize this for a moment because it is a point of contention in the church world these days. Who does salvation belong to? God. Belongs to God. Does it belong to you and your free will? No. Does it belong to you and your choice? Do you make Jesus Lord and Savior? No. No. You don't make Jesus anything. He is already Lord, and he makes you saved. Amen. You don't make him Lord and Savior. So I ask again, who does salvation belong to? God. And all of heaven is announcing it as the first attribute, the first characteristic following the command, praise Yah. You praise Yah. And the first thing to say about him is all salvation. Everybody who ends up in his presence. Everybody who has life and is sustained in this life. It is God who has accomplished that. He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. And he doesn't share that glory with anybody. Salvation and glory. That word doxa is a tough word to translate because... What it means, literally, 
is the very essence of a thing that makes a thing the thing it is. Does that make any sense to you? I mean, it's, it's how Paul talks about stars that shine with different glory. They, they give off a different light because they have a different essence to them, but that essence is part of what makes them what they are. And yet that word glory can also be used of God, that God is the only being in the whole universe whose entire reason for existing is found within himself. This is why God would say, I am that I am. I just simply am. I'm not going to define myself. I'm not going to explain myself. I just simply am. Therefore, I have all the glory because everything that I am is wrapped up in me, and that is the very essence of what I am. So it's a tough word to get a hold of because sometimes we just use it like an exclamation. Something good happens and we go, glory! Especially here in the South, for some reason, that gets said a lot. And yet, all glory, the essential element of everything, what it is, why it is, why it exists, how it exists, all of that is wrapped up in God. Because he is the maker of everything, and he made everything specifically to have a particular place in the ultimate glorification of himself, and that is the only thing that gives value to anything at all, including you. And that's all wrapped up in glory and the glory of God. Salvation belongs to God. Glory belongs to God. And he's almighty. He's all powerful. By the way, since God has given himself the proper name, El Shaddai, which means I have all the power. Since he's given himself that name, how much power does that leave for you? None. None. Because he has all the power. So that kind of takes you back to the salvation question. If you don't have any power, then truly, genuinely, you can't save yourself. He has all the power. He can save you despite you. Even though you are like you are. And I know some of you. And I know how some of you are. And, and I shudder. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm not going to tell stories. Yeah, all of the power belongs to God. Therefore, he is capable. Therefore, he is able to save you, to use the writer of Hebrews' words, to the uttermost. He can save you utterly and completely because he has all the power and you have no power, which means when he's out to get you, when he's out to save you, you don't even have the power to resist because he gets all the glory, especially in salvation. And that's what's being declared in heaven in direct response to the demand, to the command, to the directive that you praise God. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And now John does something really, really interesting. I told you that hallelujah only exists, the word only exists in the Hallel Psalms and in the book of Revelation. John now reaches back to the Psalms and writes, because his judgments are true, and because his judgments are right. That's Psalm 19. And so, God has all the power. God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. God demonstrates that through the way that he is saving those that he elects, that he chooses, that he calls to himself. And he's able to do that because all of his judgments are true and are righteous. This is a tough one to get a hold of. I know Shane. I I, I know Shane. God save Shane. One Shane that saved Shane. And yet, in the saving of Shane, the Bible says that the judgment of God in his salvation was true and righteous. Is there anything about you that you could say is righteous? 
Is there anything about you that you could even say is true? And yet, in the saving of you, God did a righteous, true thing. Is that remarkable? I mean, because God is righteous, because God is true, because he is the very essence of righteousness, then all of his ways and all of his actions are righteous and are true, and therefore in the saving of his people, in making those judgments, he is right and he is true to do it that way. And in his judgment of this world and of the Babylon system, in the destruction of this world's economy and this world's governments and even this world's religious systems, in the doing of the destruction of all that which will make human beings weep and mourn and throw dust over their head, God is still right. He is righteous and he is true in all his judgments. The Psalms say it. The book of Revelation says it. Because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. Now we know for sure that we're talking about a lot more than just physical, historic Babylon. The great harlot was corrupting the whole earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his saints on her. It's the same thing that Revelation 18.20 announced. O heaven and you saints, you apostles and you prophets, rejoice over her because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. So it's a vital part of this judging that God is doing that he's not just doing it because of his own righteousness. He's not just doing it because of his own character. He is doing it on behalf of all of us who belong to him because we can't do it. And I know I get really frustrated at the fact that I can't do it. I get frustrated at the fact that I can't change things, that I can't fix things. And yet things are going to get changed and things are going to get fixed because God himself in his righteousness is going to judge the systems of this world. And we are going to glorify him and praise him and worship him in the doing of it. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And as a consequence, verse 3 says, and a second time they said, hallelujah. (laughs) Praise God. Say good things about him. Her smoke rises up forever. Endeavor. And the 24 elders, you remember the 24 elders? It's been a while since we've seen them. But at the beginning of the book of Revelation, we read about the 24 elders who are around the throne of God and the four living creatures. They fall down and they worship God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. You know what that means. That means verily, truly, it will be so. And then they add, Hallelujah. Praise God. And a voice came from the throne saying, as if it wasn't enough, that you've got multitudes of people and angels and the 24 elders and the living creatures. You've got all of them declaring the goodness of God and the necessity to worship God. On top of that, a voice comes out from the very throne that he is sitting on and says, give praise to our God. Give praise is the same as hallelujah. Give praise to our God. All you, his bondservants, that is us. We are the bondservants. We are the doulos. We are the slaves of Christ. And all we who have been redeemed, who have been gathered, who have been blessed by him, now we know what we're going to be doing in eternity We are commanded to give praise to our God because we are his bondservants. You who fear him, the small and the great. That means if you're something in this lifetime and you worship God and you're his bondservant, then you're commanded to worship him. And if you're nobody in this world, if you accomplish nothing in this lifetime but you have Christ, You are his bondservant, and you are told to worship him. 
the small and the great, collectively all of those who belong to God, ultimately are going to give him praise because he has saved us, because he has all the power, because he gets all the glory. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Just imagine how loud that has to be. And they were saying, hallelujah. They go back to the same theme, praise ye Yah. Hallelujah. Why? For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He's in charge. You might as well get used to that. One way or the other, you're going to bow the knee. One way or the other, you're going to get down in front of him because he absolutely reigns. He is the sovereign. He's completely in charge. You might as well be on his side now because he's going to judge the whole world. He's going to judge the systems of this world. He is going to set his son on his throne in Jerusalem And he is going to rule the nations with his rod of iron. The world is one day going to discover the reality of Yahweh, the God of Israel. I pray for all of you collectively and for myself that we are on the right side in that judgment. And the way to be on the right side is to be found in Christ. And if you are found in Christ, there is no judgment for you. Where did I begin this morning? At Romans 8, the very first verse, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The world is going to get judged. God is going to demonstrate to the whole world his absolute power and authority. And we will not suffer the judgment of God if we are found in Christ. I'm going to close this morning with First Chronicles, just to show you that even in the Old Testament, since we're in the book of Revelation, sometimes people think of Revelation as like the end of the Bible. But even back in First Chronicles, as David is establishing the temple, as Solomon is building it, David has laid up all these treasures for it. And so David, just before he dies, at the end of First Chronicles 29, we read about the death of David. Just before he dies, he goes to the temple and he makes this declaration. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. In other words, David spoke well of God before all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on the earth belongs to you. Yours is the dominion. That means you rule over everyone and everything Yours is the dominion, Lord, and you exalt yourself as the head over all of it. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over everything. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make people great or to strengthen anyone. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. If you come away with nothing else this morning, God expects your praise. God expects you to worship him. All of heaven is doing it. And all of heaven is going to increase in their praise of God as this world continues to wind down.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.